you're welcome for that ridiculous song being in your head. Um, thank you for being here today. My name is Chris Causey. Um, I'm the lead pastor. And literally, by the end of this series, that song will be stuck inside of your head. And you will wish I was dead. See, I just added a whole other verse to this song. Um, so we're so glad you're here today. Um, we're in the middle of this series called Stay Positive. And the heart of this series was really born out of just um, looking at kind of the current uh, kind of terrain of our culture and where we're headed over the next year. Um, I came across a study that revealed that a, a substantial kind of significant portion of the American population um, believes that the best days are behind them. That as a nation, our best is behind us, not ahead of us. And that there really is kind of this um, epidemic of negativity, um, of hopelessness. And hopelessness is a powerful thing. It's an insidious thing. It's the, often the thing that keeps us chained in our current situation where we look in the mirror and we believe we can never change or the circumstances is never going to be different. And we live enslaved to that mindset. And so my heart as kind of the pastor was to say, in November, um, in a month where we're already kind of focusing on some really positive things and holiday seasons coming up, let's lean into a series that can actually give us some tools and disciplines and a way of thinking that can actually change your life. And, um, there's kind of it's born of in this fascination I've had for a really long time growing up and kind of a rough um, kind of ex a kind of extended family situation. Um, I watched a lot of really bad choices play out in slow motion. And one of the things that fascinated me, even as a little boy, was how can some people experience the same thing and end up in two different places because of it? How does one circumstance lead someone to two different places? That some seem to get bitter and then some seem to get better. Some seem to sink and some soar. That there has to be something more at play than just the circumstances in the midst of their life. There must be something operating underneath the surface. In fact, there's been kind of vast sociological studies that's interesting. That Did you know that the if prisoners, there was a study done on UK prisoners, that prisoners had a two to three times... Um, more likelihood have lost a parent. That, so somehow losing a parent when they were a child, um, that kind of group of people had a l greater likelihood of ending up in prison. And yet there were some other studies done that looked um, at both the Encyclopedia Britannica and all the biographies that contain so the life that would have required you to make it into that book and prime ministers and presidents. And what they found was that those individuals, that by the time... Of, of the 543 biographies in the Encyclopedia Britannica, 50% of them before age 20 had lost a parent. So you have this, these two vastly different groups of people, and yet both of them had experienced the tragedy. One of the greatest tragedies that a child can experience is the loss of a parent. It is the backdrop for most of Disney's stories. I mean, think about it. There's only a handful of Disney characters that grew up in a house with both parents. It was like almost that was the default. Hey, we've got to write a story. Okay, well, let's kill one of the parents. Um, now what do we do? Because all of them lost a parent. And it's because this is one of the greatest tragedies. And yet, what I want to do this morning is kind of take you on a journey and to dig beneath the surface, say, what is operating underneath? Because some people, when they get stuck in a rock in a hard place, it crushes them. 
but some seem to soar because of it. And what I want to do today is read a couple passages from a letter written almost 2,000 years ago, an amazing letter, very practical letter in the New Testament. It was written by a man named James, and James has historically been considered the brother of Jesus. That James sets out, and he hadn't always been a fan of Jesus and what Jesus believed about himself, but he eventually, because of what happens to Jesus, becomes one of the leaders in the early church, and he begins to write and begins to kind of influence. And one of the groups that he's overseeing is a group of Jewish men and women who've become Christians. And they're dealing with some pressure. They're dealing with persecution because not only is racism systemic in the Roman Empire towards Jewish people, but on top of that, there's an elevated um, kind of nature to it because now they're Christians. And Christians were, for a vast majority of that early period, were systemically persecuted. They were um, prevented from getting jobs. They were sometimes murdered. Their families were killed in front of them in order to kind of prompt uh, kind of a retraction of faith. It was really hard being a Christian in the first and second century of the Roman Empire. And so James is writing this letter in the aftermath of the church being born. And these people are experiencing a lot of different struggles. And you can kind of pick up on it even at the beginning. So James chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter, um, we've already loaded it in the Encounter Church app for you. If you have it downloaded, if not, you can download it even while I'm speaking, and it'll be on the screen uh, around me. But at the beginning of the letter, verse 1, James basically goes, hey, it's me, James. And then verse 2, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, here's what's this kind of interesting thing to note. Um, I doubt you spend a lot of time reading ancient letters and um, really being comfortable around ancient letters. I am, however, a nerd, so I am. And so one of the things that happens in especially Greek and Roman letters of this day and age is it's very similar to how we interact today as humans. When you bump into someone in the grocery store you haven't seen in a while, or maybe even if you're walking into your coworker's office, you don't walk in and immediately say, where's that report that you told me was going to be due today? Because we think those people are jerks, right? And so what do you do? You go in. You want that information, but you walk in and you say, hey, how are you doing? Like we ask that question, but no one actually cares because they immediately move on. They're like, oh, good. How was your weekend? What'd you do? And maybe some of you want to know, but then there's some of you personality types where you don't care, but you know you have to do that in order to get where you want to get. And so in, in the same way, in the ancient letter writing kind of format, there was always a period of niceties at the beginning of every ancient letter. You would always introduce who you were in the letter. Then you would have a couple sentences of niceties. You can actually see this throughout the New Testament letters if you flip through um, usually the first few sentences are Paul, who's the predominant writer of the New Testament, being and practicing some of these like niceties of the day. But James, James doesn't do that. James says, hey, it's me, James. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. It's like, hey, man, what about my weekend? What about the how are you? And he's like, no, no, no. I know how you're doing. It's hard. So I'm going to jump straight to the thing that's crushing you. This rock in a hard place, I'm going to go ahead and deal with it. He says, consider it pure joy. And he says, whenever you face trials of many 
kinds, which is interesting. So James uses a couple words here that really draws the circle wide. In the, the language of his day, there were actually a way to talk about trials that was very specific. So there were internal trials, you know, anxiety, stress, pressure. Um, then there were external trials, sickness, financial troubles, right, trying to find a job. And the people in this time period, the language that they wrote and read and spoke, allowed them to be really specific about what type of trial. And James actually is very vague. He picks a word that can mean both. He could have picked a word that was very specific. But at the very beginning of the letter, he's trying to draw this net wide enough that he knows that they know whatever he's about to say is all of them included in it. Because what happens is he realizes as humans, we like to raise our hand and we like to be exemptions and we like to say, well, what about this? And so he uses a vague word that can mean any kind of trial. And then to emphasize it, he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And so the little hand in the back, that person who asked a lot of questions, he's like, yes, yes, you too. Don't even ask your question. You're included. That's why I repeated myself. All right, now we're moving on, right? So James is jumping into this thing. He's swooping them all in because as a group of Christians in the middle of this struggle, and one of the things that we know about them and um, from the context of the letter is that one of the predominant struggles was as Jewish Christians, they were um, unable to find job. The, the rich in the community who were not uh, Christians and who were probably also racist towards Jewish people um, were oppressing them. They were making it hard to find a job. They were paying them below average wages. Um, it bordered on the element of slavery and the way that they were treating them. And, and these people feel trapped because there's a system over them that's crushing them. And it's hard. And when you're not sure how you're going to feed your kids or where your food's going to come from, right? this isn't a day and an age where there's a pantry, where there's soup kitchens, where there's government support. This doesn't exist back then. The food that you ate was typically the food you got that day in the market. And so the pressure is real for them. And he says at the very beginning, he kicks off this whole framework by giving them what I will show over the course of our next 20 minutes together four different R's that, that operate underneath the service. These four R's that are the operating system of what to do when you find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place. And this first R, he leads with it. It's an interesting kind of way to start this immediately kind of aggressive letter. He says, consider it pure joy. Now, I, I think... Hopefully, as I'm working through this, you're working through it in your brain. And so I imagine, like me, you get to that and you're like, time out. Consider it pure joy. That's not exactly um, Oprah or Hallmark, right? That's James almost is like, it's almost a football coach. Like, that pain is good, boy. You're going to enjoy it, right? It's like he starts off with this intensity. Consider it pure joy. They're like, James, don't you understand what I'm going through? He's like, consider it pure joy. But he does that, I think, because there's something happening under the surface that's really important. You see, most of us, when we step into trials, we start to look up and ask for the reason. We want to know why we're in this thing, right? 
And now, one of the things that's helpful to know is this is a group of Christians, and so they understand this idea of our brokenness, and they understand what sin is, and they understand how the whole kind of narrative of the Christian faith is that all of us come before the cross, and all of us recognize that we're broken. And so there's a a sense of uh, humility that they have that can't be assumed for the general population because they all, all the ones reading this letter know that they have brokenness on the inside. Because sometimes there is reasons for why we're in the place. If we get into situations where we have no money, sometimes the reason is that we spent all the money that we did have that could have covered the expenses that we do have, but we just didn't do it. And there's sometimes there are reasons why our relationships are jacked up because we keep making them jacked up and we keep saying stupid things and we keep, you know, way, way overstepping what we should do and say, or we keep robbing our relationships. But he's not camping in that because he's assuming they know how to work through that part. This is the other part. This is the tendency when we get into situations we don't know the reason and we want to cry out why. And his first challenge is don't think about reason. He's like, I want you to reason, but not as a noun, as a verb. See, reason as a noun is, you know, why? Why is this happening? Reason as a verb means you think about it. He's like, the first R in this operating system is you need to reason your way through this thing. Consider it pure joy. He's like calling attention to even seeing the circumstance different, to think about it different. It's because James recognizes that the, how you think about something oftentimes determines what you get from it. That there's this dynamic at play that our thoughts do dictate and they do shape what's happening in the midst of it. But by calling us to reason, to think, he's also putting this back in the realm of consciousness. Because oftentimes when we're overwhelmed, we're in the midst of trials, we go into habits. And if we have habits of retreating when things get hard, whether it's retreating into our phones, retreating into television, retreating into movies and numbing our brains to kind of to just ignore the pain. If we have that habit, then the conscious call to consider it pulls us out of that habitual retreat. Or if we have this habit of trying to treat it with substances or relationships where we use drugs or alcohol or other people to kind of numb the pain or to cover it up or distract it, that consider it calls us out of that too. It puts us in the driver's seat. No longer using habits to kind of hold us through what we're going through. He's saying consider it. But the interesting part is the consider it also has this other aspect that I think is a really important piece if we're going to operate in the midst of hard times. It's a, there's an element of pre-choice that James is calling us to. He's like, before whatever the trial is, you're going to go ahead and consider that thing pure joy. You're going to go ahead and consider it pure joy. Why? Because if you already make your mind up before you get there, it's a whole lot easier to navigate your way through. I don't know if you've ever noticed, if you make your mind up before you walk into a circumstance, like when she says this to me, I'm not going to slap her in her face. I'm going to say this back or I'm going to walk away. Right? So much of law enforcement and military training and really high capacity training across the board deals with this idea of pre-choice. We're going to go ahead and train you what to do before you step into it, because if you already know what to do before you get into it, you will do that. And he's saying, consider it pure joy. So before you even step in, I'm going to consider it pure joy. But this isn't a hype statement. He keeps going. He says, because. 
Because you know. What do you know? The testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that you need to let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is really interesting. So now he's building on why he can be so confident about considerate pure joy. He's like, why? Well, because there's a what that I want you to think about. I'm not just telling you to think. I'm telling you to think about something. And the what, as you read through this sentence into the next one, the what is this result. He's like, so that you may be mature and complete. You know, so I have a 13-week-old. And if you were to scroll through my photos, you will notice that we document everything. It's like, there's Henry's first squeak. There's Henry's first smile. There's Henry's first, like, picking his little head up. Right? And you would swear if you were outside our door that there's, like, some Grammy being awarded when it happens. Because we're like, Henry, way to go, buddy. You just went, oh, woo You know, we're like, hi, buddy, buddy, buddy. He's like, he smiles again. I'm like, you just had your second smile. We're so excited. And yet, simultaneously, I have a seven-year-old. And when she grunts at me, I don't take pictures of it. I don't celebrate when she grunts at me. I'm like, girl, you better use your words. You respect your daddy. Right, like, because the grunt, when she does it, oftentimes it's like, ugh, right? And yet, we all in, kind of, we recognize that, right? When you walk into work, like, in maybe six months, I'll take Henry's first step, that video. But when you walk into work tomorrow, or you walk into your home today, there is no one there with cameras celebrating your step into the house. Why? Because what is a milestone for him? would be considered a gravestone for us. If in adulthood we still couldn't walk, we would be sad about it. We, we wouldn't be celebrating it. We recognize that there's something about maturity, there's something about growth, and while we can celebrate the stage and the season we're in, we also recognize that there should be progress in that process. And when there's not, it's tragedy on some level. And so what he's calling him to is he's calling him to this way of thinking about what's going to happen on the other side. And that may not jump out at you and I the way it would have jumped out at them, partially because he uses this phrase that ties it all together. He says in the passage, right, he says, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So there's this like phrase here. And that that is what produces results. And so if the first call is to reason. That second call is to be resilient. The third R is the results. And that how all this comes together is, is, come, is actually found in the word he uses when he says the testing of your faith. Now we read that in 21st century with English and we think testing, pass, fail, letter grade. But that's not the way they would have read it. We're, when we read it today, we think, oh, bam, this thing hit me. I'm gone. I failed. What James is doing is actually using a different concept that would have been instantly. Remember, he's Jewish. And so this word for a Jewish culture, there was an, an instant association with the word testing of your faith. It actually is a term that 
for the Jewish people and for ancient Near, East, Near Eastern people um, had to do with metallurgy, which is the art of refining metal. And so the testing of your faith, um, actually, what I'm holding is a perfect example. And so this is called a crucible. This is what they were using back then, and in fact, larger versions still exist today in um, metallurgical shops and refineries. What would happen is you would take um, ore or metals that had not yet been refined, and you would place it inside of this thing called a crucible. Now, this is made out of graphite. It can handle 3,000 plus degrees. Um, it's an incredibly amazing, resilient little container. And so what would happen is an object like this, crushed up, would be placed inside. Now, what you need to know about this is this may look like a rock to you, but this is actually an ore that contains silver and gold. If you notice the yellow on the side, that's actually gold. If you were up close and you would see it sparkly, that's the silver. But in order to get that silver and gold out, you would crush it, you would drop it, and you would begin to heat it. Now, for those science people in the room, you'll know that various different materials have different melting points. And so as you continue to go through the various melting points, what would happen is gold melts at around 2200 degrees Celsius. But other impurities melt at a lower temperature. And what happens is the gold remains solid at the bottom. But the impurities, they start to liquefy and they start to rise to the top. And so a metal worker would scoop what was called back in the day dross, D-R-O-S-S. They would scoop that off the top, and they would put it in a little container. And then you would look as an amateur and say, oh, you're done. And they would say, no, they would crank up the heat more. And now they raise the melting point because they know, well, lead may have melted at this, but now we need to go to the next impurity. And so now they've cranked it up. And now a whole new set of impurities come up to the top. And you scoop them out. And you do this over and over and over. And each time, more and more impurities rise to the top to be scooped out. And while that's happening, more and more of the gold is settling on the bottom. This is what it means to test. This is the word that James uses. And this is the imagery he puts forth for us as the illustration for why this matters. He's saying, look, you may be in the middle of a hard place and a rock, but I want you to consider that maybe it's not a rock. Maybe there's gold inside of it, and that hard place is a crucible meant to draw out that gold that's already there. And that the reason the key is perseverance is because any good metal worker knows that you only get the gold out if you keep cranking up the heat and you let the metal stay in. If you remove this prematurely, you don't have pure gold. You still got gold mixed with a lot of impurities. It's the persevering. It's the remaining. It's the heat and the straining that actually continues to refine this. It actually, that's what's bringing out this thing. See, James knows that he's not telling them, well, you need to get joy out of your circumstance and what you're going through, because that's ridiculous. If you're in the midst of a divorce, if you're in the midst of trying to find a job and you feel like your walls are collapsing on the inside, it's a little ridiculous to say, oh, well, that circumstance should be your source of joy. No, 
His point is not that the joy comes because you're going through it. It's what it can bring out in you, not what you go through that is part of the source of the joy for you. Because when you start to realize that what you have in front of you is not a rock, it's gold, then all of a sudden you start to have a little bit more boldness to stay in the fire, to remain in. Because we all recognize this, right? Some of you pay people a lot of money to make you do things that you would never do on your own. We call them physical trainers, right? They force you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And the reason it works is because there is a principle in the human body that's also true about our soul and our character too. It's that the only way that you get stronger is by bumping up against resistance. So how do you get stronger? Well, the physical trainer is going to take you in, and they're going to make your body do things that you feel like it can't do. They bring you up to that threshold. And the, the, the beautiful irony of getting stronger through the human body is that you have to get to the point where you feel the weakest to get to the point where you're growing the strongest. And this same dynamic is at work in how you and I grow too and how we spiritually grow and how we grow in our character. And this is the, the, the concept that James is leveraging in the midst of this. For me in my own personal life, one of the things I remember as a 13-year-old, I was beginning to deal with um, OCD. And OCD as a mental illness realistically almost killed me in my early 20s. And what's interesting is I remember even before I was a Christian, I would sometimes just pray, God, if you're really there, like, would you just take this thing from me? It's killing me. And yet, uh, just recently, I was meeting with a group of, um, oh, my wife and I are actually talking about this. I was doing this thing with some guys, and I was reflecting on what has helped me in ministry more than anything else. Has it been like the, you know, multiple graduate degrees? Has it been the experience? And I realized that actually one of the things that's helped me the most as a pastor is my OCD. Because I live with this fragile weakness every single day of my life. And it gives me an ability to step into other people's moments too. And that when I was 13 years old, I had no idea that the rock that I felt like was going to crush me would actually be one of the very greatest strengths underneath me. And it's only been through the decades of that refining process that that gold has begun to bubble up. And for some of you, honestly, I don't know what the gold will look like for you. I can't step into your circumstance and, and predict what the gold or the silver is going to come out looking like. Because I don't know. And chances are you may not know. And that's okay. The hope is in the process and knowing that the process will produce results if you work the process. There was a study done um, at Kellogg School of Management, which is in Northwestern University. And what they did was they brought in 24 um, undergrads and they were given this time uh, trial exercise where they were asked to, to kind of list different items that you could have in a Thanksgiving meal. At the end of their short time, they, uh, they were told, oh, by the way, it's not done. And the time was designed just so that they felt like they had given every idea they had. And they said, oh, we're actually going to send you back in. 
But here's the thing. Um, we want you to predict how many that you're going to give us. And they're like, well, we've already gone through all our ideas. Like, we've already wasted them. They're like, well, that's okay. We'll just pick a number. And so they would pick a number. And then they were sent back into the second time. And when they went back in, what happened as a result was they had vastly underestimated how many items they could continue to come up with. And what they discovered is it was a 50% increase in the number of items, but it was a significant increase in the quality of the items that they came up with. And this seems like an odd study, but the thing is that this study has been replicated in different ways with different things and from comedians to across the board. And so what they find in every single one of these is that we tend to underestimate what resilience and perseverance will do for us. We tend to estimate what we will see result-wise on the other side of perseverance and resilience. And this is ultimately what James keeps bringing him back to. He's like the if you persevere, if you stay, if you stay under, I am telling you that there is something that will come out of you that you did not even know was in you. But the only way that thing gets unlocked in the midst of this circumstance is if you keep walking through this circumstance. I am convinced that so many of us have missed out on breakthrough because we decided to just break down. That if we'd kept moving, if we'd have kept pushing through, that there could have been a breakthrough on the other side. There could have been some things that would have happened for you and I. And it wasn't that the process didn't work. It's that we stopped working the process. We, in the midst of being refined, decided the fire was too much and we stepped out. And this is the thing that happens to us over and over and over again as we check out. And James is saying, don't give up. Keep stepping. Keep pressing. Don't stop. And now maybe you, I think, honestly, like some of these people are like, okay, James, you know what? That's easy for you to say. Because James, guess what? James is writing this letter to them. James isn't with them. They're like, well, James, um, it's funny. You write all that. But you're not here dealing with the pressures that we're dealing with. You're not here dealing with the financial weight of what we're going through, James. So, you know, quite honestly, it seems really easy for you to say this. And maybe you're in the same seat. You're in the middle of a trial, and you feel like everything around you is burning. And you're like, well, it's really easy for you to say that, bald religious guy. Right? But because. Let's just be real. James, consider it pure joy. Like you're asking me to consider this thing like actually something. Like you're telling me I can have joy even when I don't enjoy it. You're not, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not here. You don't see what we're going through. In some ways, I think to use another visual because I like visuals. They're, they're thinking, okay, so this is made out of paper. All right, so this is fun. This is like um, essentially one of those, you know, fancy paper lanterns. Um, and so um, they're like, well, James, it's really easy for you to be confident. James, because you're not here. You're not walking through what I'm going through. So it may be concrete for you, but it's paper for me. I don't have what you have. I don't have the amount of faith that you have. And so why can James 
sit down and write a letter and say, consider it pure joy. It's because I think James knew something that maybe in the moment you and I miss. You see, James had grown up in a household and around age 20-something, James starts hearing rumors that his brother is traveling around their country telling people he's God. Now, I don't know about you, but if you showed up for Thanksgiving this year and one of your siblings announced around the table, OBT-dub, I'm God, I don't know how that would probably go for you. It probably went about the same as it went for James. Like, mm, you're definitely not God. You might be a lot of other things, but you're definitely not God. God puts the cap on the toothpaste, right? And he doesn't leave it over there. God picks up his socks and his underwears. Because I grew up with you, Jesus. You're definitely not God. In fact, you, you flip through the New Testament writings, the gospel, the biographical accounts, and what you find about them is that they are so convinced he's not God that they start showing up when he's speaking at places to kind of stop him. Because they're like, Jesus has lost his mind. And, and so James watches his brother crucified. He watches his mama traumatized. And then three days later, he experiences the resurrection where his brother comes back to life. And he writes them this letter because James actually sees Jesus. That we know from the writings in the New Testament letter that he actually, Jesus appears in front of him and James is like, oh my God, you are God. And this changes James' life. He becomes the dominant leader of the Christian church. And so, yes, it's possible that they're thinking, it's just paper. You've got all this stability. I didn't grow up in the house with him. He didn't appear to me. I didn't see him the way you saw him, James. And so, you know what? You got a lot more faith than I do, James. But James starts his letter, consider it pure joy, because he recognizes that they are kind of hovering above this thing, unsure if it can hold them. Because now there's a lot of weight on them. And they're doing this dance. They're like, I don't know if this thing, I don't have a lot of faith, James. I only got a little bit. And James is like, look, it's not about the quantity of how much faith you have. It's not about how much you think you can muster up. The issue is around the quality, not the quantity of faith. See, if there's substance, it doesn't matter how sincere you are in that moment or you're not. It's the substance, not the sincerity. It's the quality, not the quantity that gives him the confidence that makes him say, that causes him to lean in and say, consider it pure joy. And the reason why is because when you have seen your brother crucified, come back from the dead, all of a sudden, it brings a sense of holy confidence. Because if God can do that with him, if God is that for me, then that means no matter what it is that I find myself walking through, I know that God can bring good in it for me. 
that there is a substance, there is a confidence, there is a strength, not, not in the quantity of how much I have faith-wise, but in the quality of the faith in which I stand. My faith is strong. It can handle my weight. And when you can put your weight on it, you can wait on it through hard times. You can lean into it when you're not sure you can make it through. Because all of a sudden it opens up your eyes to a whole different thing. That I can have joy. Why? Because there is someone greater than my struggle. There is someone stronger than my pain. There is a God who is still about bringing dead things to life. That it's okay if it's dead in my life because I know the God of the resurrection. He can do it again. He is strong and he is able. He's bigger than my struggles. He's bigger than my addictions. He's greater than my brokenness. And I can put my weight on it. And I can wait on it. And that James can say, consider it pure joy. Pure joy. Not only joy, but joy above all the other feelings that we feel. Because we know that who is with us is bigger and is greater than what's against us. And so maybe you're here today. And maybe you're in the midst of what you feel like is a relationship falling apart in slow motion. Maybe it's a bank account that's not, hadn't reached zero in a while because it's been living underneath that number. Or maybe you're trying to figure out how you're going to make ends meet this month. Or maybe you keep clicking or you keep drinking or you keep popping and you're not sure that there's anything greater or stronger than the, the chains it has on you. And I would say to you what James says to them too. That he's stronger than any of it. That he is greater than any of it. Because that fourth R in that operating system is the resurrection. Because if God can do that, then I challenge you to find something He can't do. Or good He can't bring through. Even your hardest moments. That that is who James follows. That is his source of confidence. And that can be what you stand on too. And just in case you think I'm joking, this is paper. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just saying that sometimes, even when it comes to faith, we fall into the trap of believing it's the quantity, when in reality it's always been about the quality. It's not the sincerity, it's the substance. And that is where our hope is found. Let's pray.